Welcome to the Lifting Lindsay podcast. I am so excited to have this episode for you guys today. I am interviewing a coach that I worked with for quite a long time, Cody Moxley. We talked about some really interesting things and I know you guys are going to love this conversation. We talked about optimization of exercises. What makes a good hypertrophy exercise? We talked about glute work and wide versus narrow and hip thrust versus glute bridge and abductor machine, all of these things that oftentimes we see on social media. So we really got into the nitty gritty of that. We even talked about EMGs and and what their uses are and what they can't tell us. So for those of you who have been having a hard time trying to cipher through all of the misinformation on social media about optimization and does it matter and exercise selection and does it matter, I know you guys are going to love this episode. So let's dive into it. Today, I have Cody Moxley on here with me, and I'm pretty excited about this. For those of you who don't know him, let me do a quick introduction. He was probably my longest running coach, actually. And and do you know what was even cooler about that is the fact that we had we had a minor breakup. It was it was mutual. Don't worry, guys. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It wasn't a breakup. There was no drama. It was I just took a break from coaching. And the fact that I came back and coached with you a second time, Cody, I think says everything to do with <laughs> your coaching. You're a good coach. Thank you. So you also have to know that Cody is not a man of many words. Like he can sum up something that takes me five to 10 minutes to say, because I, I say it like three different ways and I like run back and then we'll say it over again, run back and say it over again. It will take Cody probably five to 10 words. That's, <laughs> that's, that's am accurate. I right, Cody? That's yeah. accurate. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm really excited. I told him, Cody, this is your opportunity to tell everybody how, how difficult of a client I was. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't that bad. <laughs> I, I, I actually don't think I was, to be honest. I'm not highly emotional. I don't know. Did I ever get emotional with you? I don't think so. Just the regular ups and downs that everyone has, but nothing crazy. No. Yeah. Nothing, nothing too bad. Um, sometimes clients get emotional, like when they're, I feel like when they're learning the process mm -hmm. or maybe when they feel like they need the outcome versus, oh, I just want it. It'll be fun to get there. I want it. But when clients yeah. are like, no, I need this. I need it. Right. They, they come with that. I think in the first, in the first case, like you said, when they're learning, they're finding out that they, all the things they didn't know that they didn't know. And it kind of shakes up their reality a bit, especially if they've been you know, doing fitness for a while, that kind of realization of like, you know, I'm, I'm not as grounded in my knowledge as I thought I was. And that's a little bit, it can be discouraging if you don't take it constructively. Right. So that can be a little bit of a, a shakeup for people. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really good point. So how do you deal with that? Because I feel like 
they've hired you, they already have you, you already have some buy-in, mm-hmm. but then when they're like the reality that of fitness has been shaken, how do you almost get that buy-in again? Cause you, I, I'd feel like you'd have to. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's really getting more buy-in. I think it's just being more relatable, right? Cause like we've all been there. Like everyone, once you, to get to a certain level of knowledge, you all, you, everyone hits those milestones of like, you know, what, what's that, uh, that graph you see that like, as your knowledge increases, your confidence increases, and then your knowledge keeps increasing and your college, your confidence starts decreasing again, <laughs> all the things that you have no idea about. So it's like, everyone goes through that curve. So it's like, I'm just further along that curve than you are. And, you know, you got to bring it back to the, the human element of like, look, I've been there. Don't worry about it. We're going to get you through this because I know how it feels. So here's what we need to do and just, you know, keep it moving forward. You got to be, I, this, that's where my robotic side comes in handy. Cause like, look, here's what the problem is. Here's how we're going to solve it. So let's go. Your robotic side. I, I laugh about that because I used to tell my husband and I, when we got in, our, in fights, when we were very first married, I would tell him like, you're such a robot. <laughs> Because he was like, well, I see a problem. Here's the logical solution. Like, let's just just get there. And I'm like, no, we have to feel all the feels before the logic, Alex. It was, oh man, just you wait, Cody. One day you'll be married and you'll know exactly. You'll have that moment that maybe, maybe not. (laughs) Unless you you marry a robot. My girlfriend's a lot like I am. She's like, well, here's the logical solution. Here's what we should do. I'm like, yes, <laughs> thank you. I love it. That's awesome. Sounds sounds like you found your other half, Cody, <laughs> your other robotic half. Oh, I love it. Your comment of that graph going up and then confidence starts coming down. That is so true. And I just want to touch on that for a minute. Because I feel that as a coach, the more I learn, the more I step away from absolutes. Mm-hmm. And that's on my mind because this morning I was teaching my daughter, like, we don't speak in absolutes. Okay. There's we no never, applicable. Never speak in absolutes. We never. <laughs> exactly. I'm so glad you got that. Here I am speaking in absolutes. But um, anyways, and of course, like the Star Wars reference comes to my mind. But (laughs) but anyways, I'm teaching her like we don't speak in absolutes because that's not where wisdom lies. And and so I think I want to talk touch on this a little bit later too. uh, how to kind of spot fitness fallacies or exercise fallacies a little bit quicker. Uh, but I, I would say that that's kind of one of them is um, when people speak in absolutes, it's like, well, but, and that's where social media gets tricky, right? Because you're only given so many words. It, I find it actually harder to answer questions now, the more knowledge I have than I did years ago, because I see all the possible like different contexts and ways that could like, well... If this, then I would answer it this way. But if this, I would answer it this way. And I'm like, I have to ask, ask them like three more questions to figure out 
what exactly are you getting after before I can give you an answer to your question? Yes, exactly. And by that time, by the time you're in your third question, it's kind of like, okay, well, now I should be charging you because this is a consultation. Here's a link to a consultation call. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. I. So that's funny that you bring that up because I literally had this morning a woman reach out to me saying, is it better to do this type of list cardio, or is it better to do this one hour of, and she named some kind of hit class. I can't remember the the exact, like high fitness, I think it was. And I said, well, to be honest, I, I can't, I, I can't say which one is better for you because you're trying to speak in isolation and I can't do that because what are your, what are your calories at? Like, what's your other training like? Um, Mm -hmm. Is list going to be good for you because minimal, like no recovery required and your other training is demanding a lot of recovery or do you not even do weight training and you want to do HIT because this HIT class because it seems fun or do you have other medical factors that will prevent HIT from being a good idea for you. So I'm like, I sent her a voice message saying all of these different paths I could go down. And I said, and because I don't like speaking in isolation, I can't tell you what's right for you. And she wrote back and I loved her. She was really good about it. She's like, that is probably the best response I've ever gotten from a fitness coach before. And she's probably not used to it. Right. Yep. Well, cause everyone wants to like, people want to believe that they have the answer and it takes mm-hmm. practice and you know some humility and maturity to be like, I don't have the answer to that question because I don't know these other things. Exactly. Okay. Let's. I sent Cody like this huge list of questions, and he's like, I don't think we're going to be able to get through those ones. Yeah, I'm like, let's try. <laughs> let's. <laughs> I have a lot of things. I mean, we probably won't, but I I do have a lot of things that I want to go through with you. So. First and foremost, we're going to be talking about optimization because if anybody has visited my my or even N1's uh, Instagram account, like I use the word optimization and I use it very intentionally. I wish people knew that. Like I actually, I'm not always perfect at this, but I really try to use my words like intentionally optimally. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. I tried to use the optimal word um, because I'm speaking to a certain point, right? So oftentimes I'll say, I don't particularly like this exercise for hypertrophy. Like I very intentionally say those things. But anyway, there's kind of this battle and I think it's really weird to be honest there's this battle going on in social media, like optimization is stupid. And I'm like, what? Like who in, have you ever run a business? Like walk into a business and be like, this optimal budget is stupid. I'm like, what? Like, why is it stupid? So what have you seen? Because I feel like N1 really preaches, and you can even explain what N1 is for those listening that aren't familiar. What is N1? Why do you preach optimization? And what's the problem that everybody has with that? Yeah, I think this is a really good topic that I've actually wanted to do something on, but just haven't. So 
N1 stands for N of one. So when people are, you run studies and things, N is the number of people that you're essentially running the experiment with. N of one just represents that we're trying to optimize or individualize for one person because not everyone, it responds the average amount to everything, right? If there's a mm-hmm. bell curve to every type of response in the studies in real life. So N1 is about how do we individualize all the variables to get the best outcome for that one person. The optimization part, and I think I think the reason this came around has partly to do with people not understanding the definition of optimal because the definition of optimal is what is like our optimization is what's the best tool we have available for the current situation to get the outcome we want as efficiently as possible. And if that's not what you're trying to do with your clients, I don't know why you're coaching people. Yeah. Not one-on-one at least. Definitely. Not one-on-one. Like, Yeah. Honestly, that's what one-on-one coaching should be. Right. So, but I think the, the reason there's become a controversy is that that's been our message is like, what's the best thing we can do for this person this time, this outcome. That's, that's what we're trying to optimize or what is optimal. I think people are viewing it as saying that, oh, you know, this one exercise is the optimal exercise for this body part all the time, no matter what. And it's like, no, that's, that's not necessarily true. Like, I don't care if you know, the gen pop person who has to lose 50 pounds hits the most lateral three fibers of their iliac lats. I can <laughs> yeah. care less. As long as we get some lats in there or, you know, back in general in there is probably an improvement. They're, they're misinterpreting our message. I don't know. Maybe they have some bias against us. I don't know. But they're, the message is being misinterpreted as, oh, this exercise this is the most efficient way to hit this tissue. And yes, okay, maybe this is the most efficient exercise to hit this division of the lat, this division of the chest. If you have that option available, yeah. if you don't have a cable available, then you can't do this particular exercise, let's say. So that would no longer be the optimal solution for you because you don't have it available. So out of what you have available, what's the best option? That might be your quote unquote optimal choice. If your goal is to grow that tissue or whatever, but maybe your goal is I need to improve my conditioning. Well, then you probably don't need to hit seven divisions of the delts. You probably just need a delt exercise and you need to focus more on compound and large muscle groups and stuff for that goal. That would be optimal for that goal and situation. So hopefully that makes sense as to where I'm seeing this kind of, um, I don't even really want to call it a controversy. It's more like a miscommunication, I think, Yeah. of what we're saying optimal is versus people interpreting what we're saying. And then they're saying, well, you just need to put in effort and work hard. I'm like, well, yeah, we never said you didn't. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't disagree with you. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I don't, I I have, sometimes it just makes me scratch my head. Like, why, why are we arguing about this? Like, I don't understand. Yeah. No, I think that you nailed it. It is a miscommunication because if you, and, and the fact that you even began this discussion by saying, let's define this word. (laughs) I honestly feel like 
most conversations within fitness should begin with it. Let, let's start out by definitions. Yes. Because if, <laughs> yes, exactly. And I, and, and I'm probably annoying to some people because when they'll say, well, well, this works, define work. <laughs> like, <laughs> I will do that because I feel like that that's really important though. Define work. Because as soon as we can define that, or even just define outcome, define like, then we know in what direction we're we're meeting on equal ground, mm-hmm. and then we can know what direction to even have the conversation. But some people, I feel like, it's just drama for drama's sake, and maybe they don't even care about finding a solution. It's just something fun to fight against to make them feel like they're doing some good deed in the fitness industry. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of funny to me. Okay. So along this lines of optimization, finding what's right for the individual, I want to talk about what makes a good hypertrophy exercise. Because a lot of people who are coming to me are people who they want body recomp. They want to see um, maybe a little less body fat. Yes, but they want their body to look a certain way when the body fat comes off. It's not just like take all the fat off. It's no, I want to look good when it comes off too. And some of us, me included, have experienced that where we dropped a lot of weight. I dropped like 30 pounds and I was like, wait, wait, where's the three-month transformation picture? How come... (laughs) How how come... Where's the muscle? I've been lifting weights. And so I feel like because I've experienced going into the gym, working so, so hard, trying to do all the right things, copy paste the the um, influencer who looks amazing and I copy everything she does. And I'm like, huh, it's not really looking the same on me. Nothing's changing. So because I've experienced that, I feel like that's what drove me to really love N1 and your guys' education. But let's just now say, okay, well, what makes a good hypertrophy exercise? Like, how do we spot? I mean, there are some crappy ones out there. How do we spot crappy ones? How do we spot ones that maybe just aren't as quality movements? Less efficient. Yeah, less efficient. That's a good way to put it. What advice would you give those listening? Well, I would say first, try not to look at it in absolutes again. That's a good lesson to come back to. These things are going to going to lie on a continuum, right? It's like you have to look at like first, like, well, what do you have available? You got to start there. You can't be like, well, this is a good hypertrophy exercise. Like, oh, but I don't have a hack spot. Well, okay, then it doesn't matter how good that exercise is. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. So what do we have available? And then kind of our general principles, if we're looking for hypertrophy, we want something that we can efficient, like maintain tension on the target tissue on the target muscle we're trying to work. So depending on your level of, you know, coordination and skill of executing movements, you may have a wider, um, or narrower, um, list of exercises, right? You're going to be able to more easily get output out of exercises that are stable as you get more advanced, better at coordinating movements you can probably maintain that same level of tension in slightly less stable movements. So for example, going from a hack squat to a barbell squat, let's say, 
You could maintain tension better in a squat as you get more coordinated, but you're pretty much always going to be able to get better output for, you know, quads, let's say in this example, in a hack squat, because it's not limited by stability as you fatigue. So stability can be a really good one. Um, again, if we're looking, and this is specifically as like, we're dedicated to muscle hypertrophy. We're not looking at mm-hmm. body comp, systemic conditioning, that type of stuff. We're just yeah. focused on, I want to grow this tissue as efficiently as possible. So stability will be a big one. Usually the more stable you can make an exercise, the better you can work. The other principles that are going to apply to all exercises are, does the resistance match the movement and line up with the tissue we're trying to train? So like, for example, doing a cable curl, you want the cable to be in line with your arm as it's flexing and extending. You don't want it pulling off to the side because then you have a force that is no longer as lined up with the movement that the muscle's trying to do. So that's more an efficiency thing, learning to set up your exercises correctly. So if we have an exercise that is stable, lines up well with the tissue we're trying to train, and then you can start looking at things like muscle length, if you want to start looking into that, resistance profile, if you're familiar with what that is and how to use it. You know, if you want to look at kind of what the current research seems to say, more lengthened position stuff potentially has a little more, um, let's say, ratio of stimulus um, relative to short uh, muscle length stuff on a per set basis. This is another one of those things that gets hard to answer because there's a lot of additional context there, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe for some of you uh, viewers who are a little more advanced, the little tidbit I'll say is, you know, if you've seen the, the seated versus lying leg curl thing that people like to talk about, about, oh, the seated leg curl did better for the hamstring because it was length in position. But the thing that we don't know is if you could have actually tolerated more sets of the lying leg curl because it's a short position and got the same amount of hypertrophy, Mm -hmm. right? So once you matched the level of fatigue and recovery demand, you may get exactly the same amount of recovery or amount of stimulus for hypertrophy. So we can't just say only do lengthen stuff for hypertrophy. It's good to have both lengthened and shortened. You can tolerate a higher volume of shortened stuff usually. So for example, if we're going for someone who maybe, you know, likes to train in the quote unquote higher volume stuff, because that's something they enjoy and we want to give them more sets, we might start adding in some more sets in the shortened stuff so that we don't absolutely trash them with lengths and stuff. And then they're not recovered by the next time they go to train that tissue. So there's a lot of factors at play here, which is why I caution people against, again, the black and white assumptions when they read, oh, length and position is better for hypertrophy on someone's post. And then they take that and that's all they do. There's a lot more to it. And again, that's that's stuff that we're kind of digging into in our courses and new stuff that we're working on. But hopefully that isn't too too confusing. No, I'm actually really glad that you brought that up because... I was recently on a podcast episode where they asked me, they said, so what has that, you know, this new push for lengthened, how has that changed your training? And I was like, "Mm, not a lot, actually. (laughs) 
Because most of us already knew that when you train it in the lengthened, that we are going to be getting a little bit more hypertrophy. But even then I'm cautious of saying it like that because it's not like using your example of the lying versus the seated hamstring curl, that study. There wasn't no hypertrophy in the lying. And sometimes I feel like when people are having this discussion, they act like that. Yes. That absolutely no hypertrophy happened there. And I'm like, wait, but it did. And what about, I I loved that you brought that up, Cody, that what about the person who either wants more frequency of work on that muscle for one reason or another? We can give that to them working more in the short position because they're going to be recovered for it. So there are nuances in that that I'm really glad that you touched on because a lot of people are walking around saying, well, let's just throw out all the short position work. I'm like, what? That's not what that did. Yeah. Uh, that's not what that said, I should say. But um, that's, and it leads you to another question. Like how are people who don't have the time to study all of this, who get most of their information off of social media, how do they even begin to navigate what's what's real versus what somebody taking one study and saying, don't ever do that again kind of thing? Like, remember the tricep one? We saw that with triceps. There was one study that said the overhead, the katana, it's like didn't get as much as the press down. And I watched some really intelligent people on social media throw out that entire exercise. And what was it? A month later, another study came out saying, oh, wait, no, there's more hypertrophy. <laughs> so I'm like, why would you do that? Why would you throw out an entire? But anyways, speak to that. What are your thoughts? I mean, for a gen pop person, it's just a really tough spot to be in. Their their job is probably going to be more on the side of like, vetting the quote unquote experts, like who seems to be the most critical thinker who's flip-flopping the most or the least when these new things come out or don't come out, who seems to have a logical explanation for what they're doing, why they're doing it. Um, that's probably the best you can do because, you know, people working, you know, full-time jobs and stuff don't have time to be like scouring PubMed, trying to interpret these papers that, most fitness professionals have a hard time interpreting honestly. So that's kind of a tough spot to be in as coaches. It's kind of equally as tough, especially if you're not, you know, really knowing all the types of context and things you're looking for in the papers. And you're just looking at the conclusion or the abstract and what Mm -hmm. the, the researchers think the takeaways are until you actually look at the study design or the control variables or things that they were using. And you have to have enough knowledge to be like, well, when you throw that in there, that doesn't jive with your conclusion or, you know, that's not really a valid outcome or your EMG sensors were 90 degrees to what they should have been measuring that muscle or they're in the wrong spot to measure that muscle. (laughs) Yeah. Stuff like that. And then people, yeah. So you have things like that in these papers. Sometimes they're blatantly obvious if, if that data is provided and sometimes the data is not provided that you don't, you don't get a picture of where they place the EMGs. So you have to assume that they know where to place it or that they know how to read it, or they knew how to place the muscle and how to set up the exercise, how to execute the exercise. Um, so that's an, it's, it's 
it's honestly tough. There's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. we don't know. There's a lot of conflicting information and, you know, very few people have the time to spend all day trying to hash all these things out. So you have to work with what you have. So you again, have to find, try and find people that are already doing this stuff. Like you have the mass reviews and stuff. They do a pretty good job of they do. They do a good job. and aggregating things. That's a good starting point. Cut down a lot of your time if you're dedicating a couple hours a week to that. Um, but yeah, part and part of it's going to come down to just experience and honestly knowledge of things like basic biomechanics that can help you uh, assess how potentially valid these papers are as far as how they set things up, right? Yeah, no, that's really good because it is really hard. It's and for those listening, like it's it's not just hard for you; it's hard for us coaches mm-hmm. who we're trying to help the individual. We don't even have a lot of time to, um, or even knowledge or background on how to read a lot of these studies as well. And so I feel like there's a few things I'll, I'll maybe throw out there through suggest a few suggestions. One we already touched on when people speak in absolutes, that's kind of a red flag that maybe they're, they're not like a quality person to follow. They might be a great person in real life. <laughs> and so I'm not talking about them as far as like that. But, um, and then another one would be like when they will admit to being wrong. Yes. I was thinking that exact, that was my next one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. If you've thought the same exact thing on everything for the last 10 years, that's kind of a red flag for me. Yeah. That, that's a really big red flag. Right now I'm actually writing a post of all the things that I used to do like two years ago that I don't do anymore. Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes coaches think, well, if I admit that I'm going to, people won't trust me anymore. I'm like, no, actually they will trust you more. More. 100, especially those that like are critical thinkers, they will trust you more if you say, hey, um, oh, there's somebody, Luke, what's his last name? He does it all the time. Things that I used to think that I got wrong. I can't remember his his last name, but on social media, he he posts that all the time. Uh, another one, kind of along that that same line, are those that will say, "Well, we don't have enough data to to say one way or another." But this is a logical. We can we can put these pieces together and come up with this for right now. Yeah, and sometimes that's what you have to do. It's like you have to use some you know logic and critical thinking and deductive reasoning and be like, "Well, this is the best we think." we know how this is going to work. So let's try it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I do that with clients. I'll tell them like, Hey, we're going to experiment with this. So just so you know, here's my thought process, but this is an experiment. And then we try it and we see if it worked or if it didn't. And I'm like, okay, there's a data point. Great. Yes. I love it. I had one other, and, and you may disagree with me on this one, but I'm just going to throw it out there. This is a red flag. When somebody doesn't use real life Examples when they only rely off of studies. They take studies as gospel truth. A study said it, Mm -hmm. therefore it's true. That's another red flag for me. I saw somebody do that with an exercise. It's like, there are no studies showing that this exercise causes pain. And I'm like, well, I have five or six clients that as soon as I pulled that exercise, they all of their elbow and shoulder pain went away. So I don't care if you have a study that says 
it doesn't cause any pain or it, I don't, I don't care. Anecdotal is still a form of evidence. Yes. 100%. Evidence-based does not end at the hard line of published on PubMed (laughs) or a research journal. That's like what happens after people have fooled around and find out for the PG version of that. I know. I love (laughs) And then people are like, hey, we've been doing this for a while or people have been doing this for a while. Let's see if we can figure out why that happens. And then they do a study. Mm -hmm. The formal research trails what is actually being done in most of the cases. Yeah. Right. And my question to people who take that approach, because I've talked to people like that, they're like, well, there's no study there. So we don't know that. I'm like, so if you lived 40 years ago, there's a whole lot of stuff you just would not accept, even though it kept producing results. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. Cause there's not a study <laughs> published. So it's like you have to <laughs> yeah. take all of, all of the evidence. You have to take the written stuff, but you also have to take the anecdotal from other people, obviously vet it and weigh it against everything else. Logic, put some critical thinking into it. Assess if there was confounding variables and outside factors besides just this one thing. Got a good example of that. And then your own experience. Like the more you coach people, the more you try these things out, you can see what works and what doesn't. Obviously, you can probably rely a little more maybe heavily on the stuff that's been quote unquote proven or Mm -hmm. confident, become more confident maybe in things that have been, you know, published multiple times, but you can't write off things that just no one's paid to do a study yet, maybe because it's not, it's not cost efficient for one. There's a lot of stuff that's too expensive to test, probably will never do it. Doesn't mean it doesn't work. A good, a good example of the the second one is like when people say, oh, well, so-and-so has great glutes and they do this exercise. I'm like, hold on. They don't do only that exercise for glutes. I guarantee it. Yes. So you can't say yes. that that is the exercise that got them the glutes that they have when they're also doing all of the other glute exercises, the leg presses and the squats and the bridges and the hinges and all the other things, but you see them post this one crazy fancy looking glute exercise and you're like, oh, that's what's going to do it for me. Mm, no, probably not. It was probably the years of doing all the other stuff over and over. Yes. Yes, 100%. I'm so glad that you brought that up because it comes back to that isolation thing. We like to think in isolation. We see this one little video of them doing this weird movement and they're like, that's it. That's the magic pill I've been missing. And do you know what? That's how I was when I very first started in fitness. I didn't know how else to think. I had no clue what I was doing. I came from a running and I came from a little bit of a sports background, but Back then we weren't heavily into weights and looking back on what I did do, it was almost a joke. So <laughs> there's no point of talking about that, but um, that whole isolation thing, well, so-and-so has great booty and she does this. That doesn't mean that's where they got it from. Mm-hmm. It could be a whole lot of other things, including some you know, assistance with a pill or something. I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. This was like a perfect transition, Cody, into glute work. You did that well. (laughs) We're going to talk about this now. So let's talk about hip thrust versus glute bridge because that's a question that I get a lot. Like, 
What do you program hip thrusts? Do you only program glute bridges? What's the difference between the two? What are your thoughts? Well, I know I can hip thrust a heck of a lot more than I can glute bridge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I actually don't. I only did hip thrust the one time just to test that out and haven't done them since. No. Interesting. I personally don't really use them. I don't usually program them. I prefer other options. If I want more lengthened range glute stuff, if I want shortened range glute, range glute stuff, I'm probably going to use a bridge or a 45 or a cable or something like that that's you know going to be a little more specific. And if I want, you know, I guess it depends on the logic you're trying to use the hip thrust thing. I, I mean, a perfectly valid reason was or is the client really likes doing hip thrusts. I'm like, okay, I can work that in there. We can make it work towards the goal. I'm not going to make it 80% of your glute work mm -hmm. if we're going for hypertrophy. I don't really have a problem with it unless you're using it for an application it's not good for. Then I would say that's not a good idea. Um, that just comes down to efficiency. Use the most, the best thing for the goal, optimal. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I use glute bridges. I'm again, usually not just in isolation, except for very specific things like an incomplete rest, you know, type of thing. IRMs usually they're paired with something or a pre-exhaust or a post-exhaust because they're they're It's a very small range of motion. Yeah. It's only the short position. It's pretty pretty stable exercise. Um, but it is one of those exercises that it can be good for someone to learn hip hinge without a lot of other things, right? So maybe it's a good teaching tool, or maybe you have someone who just likes to be able to, you know, quote unquote, feel the muscle working. So you give them some glute bridges because they can, it's in a short position. There's some, you know, sensation there from being in a short position. They like that. Okay, sure. We'll give you a couple of sets of glute bridges. But again, I'm not going to rely on that as a, a hypertrophy tool because it's a very small range of motion. It's only loaded in a very small portion of the range. There's a whole lot of other exercises that would probably be more efficient for other purposes. Gotcha. So what about um, usually when I say glute bridge, people are like, well, is it from the floor or the bench? So what are your thoughts about doing it from the floor and not doing it from a bench? I personally don't like the floor one, because I feel like it forces you to kind of like flex your spine a little bit as you get up. Mm -hmm. um, plus you have, you know, gravity co to contend with. So it feels like the bar is when you get to that top position, mm -hmm. the bar is like sliding down towards your head. So you have to like brace it with your arms, depending on how good you are at coordinating that hip extension movement. You might have people sliding on the floor because they're trying to, you know, knee extend it or something crazy. Mm, yeah. Um, whereas the bench kind of prevents that. Um, obviously it only goes straight up and down. You don't have to worry about it rolling up to your head, um, or anything like that. <laughs> um, plus it's easier to have a nice pivot point on that bench to kind of rock on rather than the floor where it kind of forces you into like almost like a thoracic flexion-y thing. And, you know, you don't have to worry about pushing your head into the floor or anything like that. So yeah, it's from the floor has always been so uncomfortable for me. Mm -hmm. And like, even just from the comfort and then, like you said, the gravity of the bar coming, rolling down, especially when you start really using heavier weights. Yeah. As you get stronger, it's not really that practical. Yeah. It, it really isn't. Okay. Uh, abductor machine for glutes. What are your thoughts? If you can lay the back pad down 
so that you're in hip extension when you do it. That can be a good like glute minimus and glute med type of movement. In the, let's say the, for the people who are just listening, the hip flexed version where you're at like 90 degrees of hip flexion, like you're sitting upright and doing the abduction thing, it's, you know, you're going to be using the piriformis quite a bit. Glutes are still working. They're just not really in the best position to line up with that load for the leg path that they would want to do. So kind of like when we talked about our hypertrophy principles, the resistance doesn't line up that well with the movement those tissues would be producing as they shorten. They, it's not to say they aren't working. It's just to say they aren't working as efficiently as they could be. So that's why I say if you were able to lay the back pad down or something where you're in hip extension or at least neutral, that would line up better with the actual abduction motion of the glute minimus and the glute med um, in that in that case. And so you'd have to be a, like a smaller person if you're looking at like the usually um, the machines that most of us deal with don't allow for it to move back. And so you'd have to be a pretty small person to, because I've seen a lot of people try to lean back. I even tried tried that once to lean back and see, and I was like, oh, it just doesn't, cables are just going to be your best bet. Like it's just going to line things up so yeah. much better. If, if your goal is specifically glute minimus, glute med, that machine is probably not going to be your best option. I would, yeah, use a cable or, I mean, shoot, even like a lying clam type of movement, like a weighted with a dumbbell or something would be a more direct resistance for like some of the glute mean and minimus stuff. Now there's nothing wrong with doing the abduction machine. If you just realize that that's not the tissue it's training, I'm just training it for this movement. I want to get strong at this movement for whatever reason and the tissues associated with it, by all means, go for it. Okay. That's a great answer. Um, and then we're going to, let's see, move on to wide stance for glutes. Uh, so a lot of people will do, a lot of women uh, on social media will show like really, really wide stance, sumo, saying that this is more glutes. I just love what we've learned from N1 on this one, but I, I just wanted you to explain that. So is that more glutes? Compared to what? <laughs> There's my N1 answer. Oh, man. Now I know what it feels like to be on the other end of me. Um, <laughs> so if a woman is trying to choose an exercise where she is going to overload the glutes in a lengthened position, a more lengthened position, is wide stance going to be the best for her? Like a sumo stance. It would not be the most efficient, No. So, and it all, it's also going to depend on how wide, right? Cause there's a, there's a continuum of stuff as the legs move, the bias shifts. It's not a hard, like, Oh, now it's no more glutes. Now it's this, yeah. right? But they're still working again. Again, it comes down to lining up the resistance with the movement that the muscle does. As you get into like kind of that very wide stance where you're, when you're going into hip flexion, your, you know, femur is kind of coming outside the edge of your pelvis, let's say, is kind of where it's mm -hmm. aiming, right? It could be coming up towards your shoulder, let's say, if you're trying to envision this. That's going to start putting a little more bias on like your adductor magnus. 
that would be the line of pull that would line up really well for that tissue. As you start coming in narrower, so basically, you know, knee straight up in front of you um, type of area, that's where your glute max is going to start to have a better leverage and line of pull to do hip extension in that direction. So that's where we start, you know, that's where we've kind of been talking about the narrower stances are going to be a little more biased towards glute. And as you start getting wider, it's going to become more and more like adductor magnus will be kind of your primary um, hip extensor, hip extensor in that lengthened or bottom position. Um, and then you can go to the extreme, obviously, of the narrow to where we're actually coming across the midline of the body. And that's where you start seeing like our drop lunges, the iliac cable kick and stuff like that, where that uh, femur is coming you know, almost towards the opposite side on the way up. And that's, again, changing what tissue has the best leverage in that position. Okay. I've, I have worked with a lot of women who come to me and they're like, I want to build my glutes. And it has been interesting to see that they're like, I do all of these wide stance, all of this glute stuff. And it has been fascinating to see their adductors almost have like this they, it, it, this bulge, this round, it is high. They have put a lot of tissue on their adductors and then they've been frustrated because their glutes are still a lot flatter. And that is something that I've seen with clients is as we've brought their stance narrower, all of a sudden those adductors are kind of calming down um, and we're able to put the tissue on where they want to. Mm-hmm. So once again, that's just something that I've seen since, I think that that was what, like two, three years ago, something like that, that I started three years ago, I started doing that. And um, I've been able to see some really good progress. I, I love that it doesn't mean that you don't do wide stance because what if you want to build out your inner thighs more, right? Then mm-hmm. that's... So a lot of times I match that up though with my quad work. So I'll do a little bit wider stance for my quad work Mm -hmm. so that I can get some adductor quads. Well, I think part of the reason too is people are thinking more hip flexion, glutes are lengthened more, right? Because as you get into a slightly wider stance, you do have more hip flexion available than a narrower stance. Yeah, And people are conflating that more hip flexion means more length in glutes mm. when that's not always the case, right? It depends on the path of the leg. So I think that's where some of it came from too, is like, oh, I want length in glutes. I need max hip flexion. This is the position where I get max hip flexion, but it's actually better lined up for the adductors. The other thing I think is there was like some EMG stuff they did with the wide stance and the glutes read really high on the you know, the sumo thing, but that doesn't correlate with that being the best tissue for the job. So there was some misinterpretation of the data there. And then you have the visual thing as well. When you're at top of a, a sumo, your, your, your butt cheeks are pinched together. So they look bigger. So that must be a glute <laughs> exercise. <laughs> I love it. It must be. Must Cody, be. My butt looks bigger. Those, those Instagram butt images don't lie. Okay. That's right. <laughs> I love the, I love all of the Instagram where it's like this woman and she's like tricep work, but it's just like an a image of her butt. It's yep. like bicep work, image of her butt. 
because <laughs> that's just the best way to get views and likes. Maybe that's why, maybe that's why I'm not so popular. Maybe as soon as I start changing up the orientation of my, you know, recording. There you go. That's the key. Uh, you touched on this EMG. Mm -hmm. So higher EMG readings, does that equal more hypertrophy? Not necessarily because all the EMG is reading is basically the electrical activity of the tissue underneath the sensor. It's another one of those situations where there's a lot of contextual variables that can change that reading. So we can't use it as a one-to-one -one proxy for something like hypertrophy, which is a multifactorial thing. So things that can increase the activity of the EMG that don't correlate with actual tension can be things like the length of the muscle itself, because as a muscle shortens, you're going to end up with more tissue crossing over and more tissue underneath the sensor. More tissue underneath the sensor is going to result in a potentially higher signal, even though more tension isn't being produced. So that's one. And that's kind of a big one. The other can be just um, the position itself. Um, so, I mean, this is why we like to use ratios of EMG changes to determine what tissues are biased rather than looking at the max amplitude um, in a lot of our stuff. Because we can see, okay, well, in X exercise, they're all working at these particular ratios. If we change whatever the arm path or the setup, and the ratio of them changes to favor one over the other, that tells us, well, there's more activity going here, but it's standardized for things like the length and the range of motion and position. So that can give us an idea of something is being more recruited by the nervous system, but it doesn't, you know, I mean, that's, that's what, that's all we can get out of that. So, and again, I'm not an expert in EMG interpretation. So that's about where my knowledge on that specifically kind of ends is why we use the ratios rather than the maxes and how the length can affect things like the amplitude. Mm -hmm. So why using just, you know, raw amplitude of this muscle across multiple exercises doesn't tell us the same thing as the ratio of these muscles to one another across these exercises, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that's probably beyond what you know, most of your listeners really care about. They're just like, well, which exercise is better? So mm -hmm. don't, don't. Yeah. My, my takeaway is don't look at just what a max EMG study says. That's not telling you what you think it is. Yes. That's, that's an excellent, excellent way to position that. Okay. So we are not even going to be able to get into the programming. You were right, Cody. I I had high hopes that we could maybe another hour, another time we can get into programming because I think that you bring some really good nuance. You can bring some really good nuance to this as well. So I'd love to have you on again and we'll talk about that. Sure. But um, in closing, okay, tell my listeners where to find you, maybe a little bit about N1, what you guys have going on right now, um, what you can help them out with, et cetera. Yeah, sure. So um, for N1, for those of you that are you know personal trainers, coaches and stuff, we do a lot of online courses. We do live events here in Colorado at our HQ. We have one coming up in June. The second one in June is sold out. 
And then we have some more coming up in September. If you guys are interested in the hands-on uh, aspect of things, online courses go from everything from biomechanics to program design, assessment. We have some specialty courses on there for biometrics, uh, progressive overload, those type of things. For general uh, training information, we have the N1 training site. So we have exercise library articles, videos, all of that kind of stuff. Um, those sites are just n1.education and n1.training, no.com. Our Instagrams for both of those are the same, n1.education, n1.training. Um, and then my Instagram is uh, at Cody Moxley or at Cody J Moxley. I just changed it. So I don't really remember which one. You it is. don't even know. <laughs> I, you know Instagram. I think it is Cody J. I think it is now. So Cody J Moxley. That's it. And uh, yeah, I just post usually tips or tricks or fun exercises or things that I think are interesting on there. I did some, uh, some setup tips for biceps and triceps recently that people seem to like. So Awesome. It's probably because your biceps and triceps are, they're big <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> once in a while, I'll send a Cody and mine relationship on Instagram is, I, let's see, what is it? It is Cody sending me Lord of the Rings and Star Wars meme yes. jokes because yep. he knows I'm going to enjoy them. <laughs> and, and it's me messaging him, telling him like, you look so big. What's your secret? What drugs are you on? <laughs> Just, that's like, that's the extent of it. But no, I, I do want to give a little shout out for N1. Like as a coach, I've said this before, like I, first off, the very first N1 camp that I went to, I think it was N1's second camp that they had ever done. Yep. And it was in LA and I, I was not a coach at the time. I don't know if you knew that, Cody. I did not have any clients. I was literally going to that camp <laughs> because, because this is how much I love lifting. I was spending thousands of dollars to make sure that I was doing deadlifts, RDLs, squats right because uh, I have really long femurs, short torso, so I don't look like the books. So my husband was a good sport and was like, sure, let's let's eat like, I don't know, beans and rice for like three months so you can learn how to squat, Lindsay. That's great. <laughs> so I I went there not as a coach, but I learned so much and then later became a coach. I've continued my education with N1. Um, I hired Cody because I really wanted to learn the implementation of everything that I had learned from N1. And he was an excellent coach as far as like learning more about program design, setup and edu uh, execution. And then go, but going to those camps, I have been to how many, like three, four, five, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I'm almost yeah, embarrassed four, to say. Four or five discount, yeah. Yeah, yep. Um, it's turned into an obsession, maybe. I'm going to be going to the one in June. So um, I'm really excited because I feel like N1's constantly progressing and questioning themselves. And there's always something new to learn. And so now as a coach, I find it so valuable but also I really, really believe that N1 allowed the knowledge that I got through N1 and through coaching with Cody 
allowed me to become a much better coach, reach more people. And the results have just been awesome. I mean, Alex, seriously, for a few months, we were eating beans and rice so I could go. But now I'm, I think he's so grateful because now he works at home and we just run our business together. And all of that really was because of the education that I got through and one. So I just, if you guys are a coach and you want to take things to the next level, you did like a NASA course and you're like, what? I still don't know very much. There's courses out there that are just so much better. And, and one is definitely the number one on my list that I tell everybody. So definitely check them out. Another thing too, whenever women are like, Hey, do you have programs for men? I say no, only because I don't program a ton of chest work. And most men are like, I want boobs. Okay. Maybe they don't say boobs, but they (laughs) I want a chest. Like, so, so most of the training that I have has minimal. And so if you want a men's program, N1, like your N1.training, Mm-hmm. they can get programming on there as well. Yep. We have pre-done programs on there. That's also where you can apply if you want one-on-one coaching. We have that on there too. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much, Cody, for coming on. It was a pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. 